Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is David French. David's a senior writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, an attorney concentrating his practice in constitutional law and the law of armed conflict, and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He is the author or co-author of several books, including most recently the number one New York Times bestselling Rise of ISIS, a threat we can't ignore. He's also got a brand new podcast called The Liberty Files, which I encourage you all to check out. I give you David French. The conversation was a blast. I hope you enjoy it. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And congratulations on your new podcast, The Liberty Files. It sounds like it almost is like The Rockford Files. I'm thinking of sort of a conservative <laughs> activist for liberty who's also like a private detective. Yeah, <laughs> I, it, it's actually uh, we, the name is the Liberty Files, but uh, it almost feels like what we're going for is uh, the fresh air of liberty. I, um, I like that. Yeah, so it's it's a uh, it, it's very much of a dialogue based uh, podcast, kind of like what we're doing right now. Bring in a guest who knows an awful lot about whatever we're talking about, and uh, just have a good conversation. Yeah, and I, I'll tell you, a, a lot, our listeners come from all over the political and ideological spectrum i would say if you have any prejudice uh regarding uh conservative uh news or podcast sources i want to say this is a one that granular analysis great banter generosity and i feel like i just got through the first episode on the deep state stuff and i felt like man i learned so much just about the word intelligence community <laughs> yeah isn't that the truth I mean, it's ruined yeah. the news for me. I, I heard them say intelligence community like 18 times today on the news. I'm like, hey, only three of the people in that umbrella, only three of the organizations under that umbrella actually collect intelligence. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, it was great because Andy McCarthy, who, and I, we didn't really get into it, but the, the guy, my guest, Andy McCarthy, uh, prosecuted the blind shake, who was the mastermind behind the first World Trade Center bombing. And so he spent months prosecuting that case uh, and then, you know, spent a ton of time in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. So if there's anybody who knows and understands intelligence, counterintelligence, the intersection of counter counterintelligence and law enforcement, it's him. And I thought it was I thought it was a great conversation. I, I, that, I also, I mean, I would put the current president in that list too if there's anyone that understands the subtleties of intelligence reports what's clack code word what i mean you have to put him in any list it's uh <laughs> <laughs> oh i mean he's a mastermind he's an absolute mastermind no i mean i gosh what to say i've got a piece coming up about this latest controversy that's basically the conclusion that i've reached is if you listen to the allegation against trump and you listen to the defense of trump then all the only real question is how troubled should I be? Not whether I should be troubled. It's how troubled should I right, be? Because right. even the defense and and I mean, gosh, I don't know how much you want to go into it, but the allegation is very serious. It's he disclosed classified information 
that came from a third party source, a which foreign was, country was just, and it was ally. It was just confirmed it was Israel. It was just, uh, right. Yeah. Right. New York Times is reporting it's Israel. So it comes from an, uh, a foreign source, comes from Israel, is disclosed to Russia without any process, without any vetting of that information through the uh, intelligence agencies, and in a manner that uh, could compromise American national security. And he did it because he was sort of boasting of how much intelligence he had. I, mean, I guess great, great intelligence. This is a serious allegation that doesn't... Re- <laughs> great intelligence. <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. This is an allegation, a serious allegation that doesn't require some 3,000-word explainer on Vox to explain why it's bad. I mean, you just don't do this. I mean, to contrast with Hillary Clinton, one of the key allegations against her was that she was so irresponsible with classified information that the information could have been disclosed to Russians. In this circumstance, the allegation is that it was actually disclosed to the Russians. And the defense is really interesting. The defense isn't, no, we didn't disclose information. The defense isn't, no, it wasn't spur of the moment. It was just that it was actually not damaging. It was actually information that one would normally share in this circumstance or conceivably normally share. And that that defense, let's just be really clear about it, is congratulations, America, you got lucky. Because essentially what it's saying is the president didn't go through the right processes. He did it on the spur of the moment. He shared classified information. um, But fortunately, we all lucked out and it isn't the kind of information that's going to damage American national security. Well, I, I don't feel super comforted by that. I have to confess. <laughs> well, and isn't it sad? I mean, the, one of the sad things, too, is you look at a guy, so such an honorable public servant like um, McMaster or someone like Sean Spicer, who's cultivated a good reputation in Washington, a good public servant, and they, and they go out there and carry water for the guy, and then he switches his story and makes them look foolish and these are people that, that have spent a, a long time, whatever your politics are, these are people that have spent careers, honorable careers in public life and, right. and, and, and in, in service to the country. And their reputations, they become punchlines. Like Sean, Sean Spicer becomes a punchline overnight because there's somebody that has no regard for the people that work for him. Yeah, the McMaster situation to me is really interesting. I mean, I, I tweeted this out. I said, everything about Donald Trump's public life gives me reason to distrust him. Everything about H.R. McMaster's public life gives me reason to trust him. So, you know, I'm looking at this dueling back and forth, and, and I have a lot of reason, and, and, and reasons that are personal, actually, to trust H.R. McMaster. I served with guys in Iraq who served under H.R. McMaster and hmm. a previous deployment, and they think the world of him. I mean, they think he's an honorable, courageous, great, patriotic American. And and so in a credibility battle, I'm inclined to, my natural inclination is to give the benefit of the doubt to H.R. McMaster. But what was interesting here is McMaster said some stuff that it wasn't uh, the Washington Post story is completely wrong. It was he shared in the context of a conversation, which is real, that's a really important phrase because it's not saying as part of a planned exchange of right. information, in the context of a conversation he shared information that he didn't know where it came from. He didn't. That, that's very, very important because essentially what that's saying is Donald Trump rolled the dice. If he didn't know where that information came from, he wouldn't even know necessarily if he was disclosing information uh, inadvertently about sources and methods that could hurt American, uh, hurt American interests or hurt American allies. So essentially what McMaster is saying is a roll of the dice. He rolled the dice. He didn't know where the information came from. He disclosed it in the context of the conversation on the spur of the moment. And then, therefore, it wasn't 
but it wasn't damaging. It wasn't damaging. Now, at the same time, he also admitted that there was a, um, he also admitted that there was uh, calls made within the government, that uh, those calls within the government uh, created, uh, that were uh, alerting the other branches of the, the other branches of intelligence agencies that this disclosure had been made. Um, and he said, well, maybe it was done under an overabundance of caution. But I think that the problem with that is uh, once those calls are being made, you know that somebody is alarmed. Now, yeah, at the same yeah. time, all this was all this was happening. Eric Erickson, who's a conservative, who was a a guy, a guy who's uh, very well known as an influential conservative, uh, was reaching out and uh, a, a reached out to some sources he had, and he talked to a guy who says he was one of the sources for these stories, and he said that the stories aren't even communicating how bad. The disclosure was. In other words, the disclosure is worse even than what the stories say. And that, that's something that I think is, um, is particularly disturbing. But we don't know the truth. We don't know, was this damaging? We don't know, was this not a big deal? We don't know if that's just a subject of a legitimate difference of opinion that some would say it's damaging and some legitimately in good faith can say it's no big deal. As far as the the underlying information itself, and, and when he said, you know, when they say sources and methods, right? Like, I mean, I've watched the Americans, right? The Russians are pretty. The <laughs> we Rus- all have. The Russians are pretty good at this shit. Like, if you, I mean, if you, like, I mean, he did name, I guess, the city or the source of the intelligence where they found it because the Post kept it out to their credit. Uh, right. So, like, I mean, can't the Russians go? Oh, okay, it's from here. Maybe we tell. Uh, you know, I mean, like, it doesn't. Well, it doesn't seem McMaster, like it, McMaster didn't even didn't deny that he named the city. That that's important to note. That McMaster didn't deny that he named the city. I mean, look, one of the dangers in disclosing information is you don't know what pieces of the puzzle the other side has. Right. So you don't know how your information is going to fit in with the information that they have. What it's going to confirm. What kind of suspicions it will confirm? Um, what kind of sources it might confirm? You just don't know that. And so that's one thing that I find a little bit unconvincing about H.R. McMaster's denial that it impacted sources and, and methods, because we don't know all that Russia knows. So, yeah, again, I mean, you know, the best case scenario, the best, think about this, the best case scenario for Trump right now is he took a colossal risk and it didn't, thanks to incredible good fortune, hurt us. That's the best case scenario. Well, I'm troubled that there would be a president who would take that kind of risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you said Eric Erickson is an influential conservative, which he is. So on the conservative influence scale, where do you, David French, rate? Like, if he's, <laughs> is he like, a, he's like a 9.5 or, you know, like Red State, it's a pretty popular website. Like, where's, uh, you know, how cons- how influential are you, National Review? Are you two thirds of an Erickson? If he's right, are you are you three quarters? Is Erickson <laughs> only two thirds of a French? By the way, after uh, the uh, they named like French fries Freedom fries. <laughs> did you ever think of changing your name to David Freedom? <laughs> no. Uh, although during the run up to the uh, Iraq War, there were a lot of people who uh, who said you need to call yourself David Freedom, but I never did that. You could be a comic book character like that, like a, you, you know, <laughs> conservative activist by day, crime fighter by night. <laughs> but I, I can't compare myself to Eric Erickson. I mean, this is a guy that The Atlantic called the most influential conservative in America. I'll say this. I I am blessed to write for what I think is the most influential and important conservative publication in America, and that's National Review. So, um, you know, National Review has been around since for 60 years, founded by William F. Buckley. Um, 
in many ways, I think we've been uh, the the intellectual and, you know, sometimes even I would say spiritual leaders of the right for decades. And so it's a huge blessing to be able to be a part of National Review and to fit within that legacy. So whatever influence I have pales in comparison to National Review. You guys are putting on some great media. Your new podcast. I listen to one of the National Review's podcasts. And then Bill Crystal has these. Uh, is he connected with you guys? I mean, I know he writes for you guys. Um, uh, no, he's a friend. He he He's, uh, you know, the former editor of the Weekly Standard, which is, uh, I don't want to say rival publication, a sister publication. Oh, we hate them. The, Screw Crystal. Yeah. Screw the Standard. <laughs> so he's with the Weekly Standard. and and uh, But no, he's a friend. I mean, he's a friend to a lot of us at National Review. And uh, you were an early Never Trumper. Right. I mean, you were kind of early on in the in the never Trump kind of, hey, you, you were pretty vocal early on. Yes. Uh, now, I wasn't always never Trump. I mean, I, I don't know anybody that's never Trump that was always never Trump. I mean, I think the feeling of an awful lot of people, me included, was, well, he's unlikely to win the primary. But if he wins the primary, I would support him over Hillary Clinton. But then as the campaign wore on and we began to see the full dimensions of his character and his temperament, then a lot of us, you know, sooner or later moved into the ne- that never Trump position. So I would say I was early in that position. I was not the earliest in that position by any means, but particularly in February, um, as the as the primaries can, began to wear on, and you began to see um, the links to which he would that that you began to see how little the truth mattered to him, and and the level of vitriol and the extent of his departures from conservative. Um, beliefs, the and then the effect that he was having on elements of the conservative movement, causing people to defend what things you know, defend lies, defend other kinds of indefensible conduct. Uh, I just reached the point where I said, you know, I, I just can't. He, this guy's not a conservative. He's not the kind of candidate I would ever vote for. I'm not going to switch and vote for Hillary uh, because I I think she has a legion of ethical and policy based problems herself. But I can't vote for him. I can't vote for either one of them. Did you write somebody in? Uh, I I did. I actually wrote in Evan McMullen, the oh, um, yeah. third he almost, party guy, it looked former like he CIA. Was gonna, yeah, like he was going to do well in Utah, but it didn't. The Mormons didn't come. I mean, through. He, 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 you know, I think what ended up happening is um, as the election got closer, an awful lot of people said, "Look, I have to make a choice. I have to make a choice between one of these two candidates, between Trump or Hillary." Um, there was a lot of potential for a third party candidate. Uh, I think Gary Johnson ran a terrible campaign, for example, and squandered some of that potential for the libertarians. Um, I think that Evan McMullen, in many ways, was a protest vote. Uh, but an awful lot of people at the end of the day said, ah, I don't want to make a protest vote. I want my vote to to matter for the outcome. And the closer the as the election got closer and the polls were still pretty close, I mean, the consensus was obviously that Hillary was going to win. That was the, the mainstream media consensus. That was the pundit consensus. But it's not like the polls were 10 points apart. They were close. And then as this race was close, I think it just tons and tons of people sort of came home and they said, I'm going to vote GOP. Now, I wasn't one of them, but I know a lot of people in my circle, friends, family, et cetera, that that was the decision that they made. Do you just want to do you just find yourself wanting to wake up every morning and tweet hashtag I told you so? <laughs> no, not every morning. I mean, he's done things, you know, he's done things that are good. I mean, the Gorsuch nomination was really good. Mattis nomination was really good. H.R. McMaster. There are things he's done in foreign policy in the war on terror that I think are good. So, you know, it's I've compared it to sort of like 
you know, you're watching a ping pong match and your head is going back and forth. <laughs> one, It's like good, bad, good, bad. I mean, that's, you know, now you, you do that for only so long and then you start to look at, well, what's the overall effect here? What's the, what's the overall uh, result of all of this? And that's, you know, that's where, you know, uh, the jury, the jury is definitely out because if he continues in the present trend, He's going to be rolling into 2018 with approval rating in the low to mid 30s. Um, he could be rolling into 2020, somewhere around that. And a lot of the people who are celebrating, yay, he beat Hillary. I am so glad he beat Hillary. He's better than Hillary. How many Democrats now, for example, say of Jimmy Carter, well, he was better than Gerald Ford? No, they look back at Jimmy Carter as really a negative event for the Democratic Party because it ushered in 12 consecutive years of Republicans in the White House. So, we just don't know what the long-term effect of Trump is going to be. And if one, if 2016 taught us anything, it taught us to use caution in uh, use caution when making political prognostications. Robert Jones wrote a piece in the New York Times a few weeks ago, and he begins talking about Chesterton when he visited the United States for the first time, saying that America was a nation with the soul of a church. And he says, you know, he wasn't referring to the religiosity, but but to this. Um, it's formation around a civic piety, around sacred text and principles like those in the Declaration of Independence. And he says that, you know, the, the profoundness of the American experiment, Chesterton argued, was that it aspired to create a home out of vagabonds and a nation out of exiles, united by voluntary assent, the commonly held political beliefs. But then he says, and he's a head of a big polling organization that does really interesting stuff. He says, but recent survey data provides troubling evidence that a shared sense of national identity is unraveling with two mutually exclusive narratives emerging along party lines. Do you think that's on the money? On the money. On the money. I mean, I have lived in deep blue America and I've lived in deep red America. And there is not a shared view of what America has been, what America is, and what America should be. So, you know, if you if you go to school in rural Tennessee, where I live, particularly if you say go to a private school like my kids go to a private Christian school, there is a story. There's a narrative about America that's going to be told. There's going to be a narrative about what American ideals are. There's going to be a narrative about what we aspire to be in the future. That's just going to be um, that's just going to be different than it is in the Northeast. I'll give you a good example. Um when when my wife uh, when my wife and I lived in Philadelphia, where did we you live in Philadelphia? Where in Philly? Centers uh, on nine in Center City on the corner of I believe, if I remember right, Ninth and Chestnut. I so bet you I know where you went to church. You did you go to Tenth Press? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah of course, yeah. I went to Tenth Press. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm in Langhorn, which is just on the city limits. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, yeah. And so I um we had an incident where uh, some parents rebelled against the singing of God Bless America in. Uh, the the school where my daughter went because the argument well God blesses all countries not just America specifically um, when when my daughter was asked to lead the pledge of allegiance they said to leave out under God from the pledge well that's something that that just would never mm-hmm. happen mm-hmm. you know where where we are it's it's like two different worlds and look that looks like okay well you know those are, that's a little vignette and those are small things but they betray a larger and and different worldview and I think you know, where a lot of this flashpoint comes in is in the view of immigration. Um, what, what is your view uh, of assimilation, for example? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what, what, when, when immigrants t- come to this country, what do we ask of them? What do they ask of us? I mean, these are things that really go to who you are as a country. And, 
And, you know, one of the things we've been wrestling with in the conservative movement is um, this concept of nationalism, which my whole life as a conservative, nationalism has not been a thing. It's been patriotism and patriotism is centered around America, not as a not as a blood and soil country, like you think of the blood and soil countries of Europe, but America as an idea organized around specific ideals and a patriotic America, American is one who doesn't just love America because the Rocky Mountains are beautiful and they were born there, but they love America because they love American ideals. They love the American idea. They love the the principles of the Declaration. They love the principles of the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, like in the Battlestar Galactica situation, it'd be easier to be an America, um, to recreate America on a spaceship looking for a new planet than it would to recreate, say, Italy or or Denmark <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Yeah, it's a different yeah. kind of yeah, yeah. It's exactly. Portable. I think that's a I think that's a great analogy. I mean, um, and and you know, and so one of the things that I thought was negative about the Trump the rise of Trumpist nationalism. And to be clear, whenever I say anything that's like Trumpism or Trumpist. I'm talking about his what his apologists say his movement was about because I I really think Trump himself is about Trump. Um, so Trumpism in its purest form is the personal advancement of Donald Trump. I think when you're talking about Trumpism as a political idea, that's when we're getting into the, sort of the nationalism and things like that that have dominated our conversation and dominated conversations about you know a lot of things. And I, I think that 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 nationalism context, I think it, argument is a is a, 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 a is a dangerous argument. It's a dangerous road for us to go down to, as a country because that's not it does not reflect the founding ideals. Why why don't you hear that argument in conservative cable news and things like that or broader you know or on the most influential people like the like on red state? <laughs> I mean I don't like I don't I don't hear that argument made very often. Well, you know, in National Review, we we're having that argument all the time. Um, and, you know, I think uh, there have been times it's been on Fox. There's been times it's been on, been on CNN. But honestly, you know, if you're looking for sort of these definitional kinds of arguments, who are we as a people? Why do we believe what we believe? What are our founding principles? How much resonance do they have to this day? Cable news is a pretty terrible medium for all of that. That That's something cable news is news cycle driven. It is. Oh no, here's the outrage of the day. Here's one talking head to break it down. Here's another talking head to break it down. And there's just not as many, you know, you can, I don't care if you watch CNN, MSNBC, whatever, you're not necessarily going to be, um, you're not necessarily going to be in a situation where you're watching, uh, people really explore the intellectual roots of a tradition. You're saying that's not what Hannity's good at? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, good joke. Alec Ball was on Howard Stern. He said, you know, well, the way I got at Hannity was, uh, I, and I really believe, he's like, O'Reilly had talent as a broadcaster. He really did. He's like, Hannity's that guy. It's like, you're at a girls' basketball game at a Catholic high school, and the, the announcer has a heart attack and dies. Like, let the assistant coach of the girls' basketball team get up there with a the microphone. And that's Hannity. Like, you know, kind of wears his jeans under, but, you know, under, with a sports shirt. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think... Uh, yeah, I, I understand why Hannity's not having those kinds of conversations. Uh, well, you know, I think that uh, well, you're getting at something I think that is one of been one of the troubling developments in the in the larger conservative world since the rise of Trump. I mean, there was a time when you would say, then I think Hannity would say, I really am trying to push forward constitutional conservatism. My goal is to push forward constitutional conservative conservatism centered around small government, individual liberty. Um, 
the and and undergirding that is a love of country of America properly understood and a uh, respect for and admiration for people of integrity. Like that's the thing. Like if if Hannity was going to define himself two years ago before the rise of Trump. He would be all in on constitutional conservatism. Same with Laura Ingram. Same with many of these others who, um, you know, jumped on that Trump train very, very eagerly. And that was something that for an awful lot of people, they looked at that and said, what's going on here? I mean, these are some of the same people who years ago were vigilantly policing Mitt Romney because he allegedly didn't have enough of a long record as a conservative. When Trump would say things that contradicted conservative orthodoxy all the time throughout the primaries. Um, so, yeah, you know, that, that was one of the interesting developments in the election was a lot of these people who previously cast themselves one way, when there came an, a, a figure who was more popular than they were, more famous than they were, more influential in many ways than they were, um, they jumped on board that train. Hmm. Now, you... Um can you ask, answer me this question? This is and this is an honest question, as opposed to all the rest of them that have been dishonest. <laughs> um, it strikes me that the Republican Party establishment, uh, it, the, the leadership. I mean, I'm talking to Trump is the most secular president I think we've had in my memory. But it, it strikes me that that even the congressional leadership strike me as religiously illiterate, or or at least have or at least have religious imaginations that are deficient or challenged. Like, I mean. Paul Ryan can get really amped up when he's talking about Ayn Rand, but I don't really t- hear anything that sounds like, I mean, Mitch McConnell, uh, I, I just, I would love to say, Mitch, tell me a little bit about how the Christian faith really has helped you, you know, as a senator, as a forgiven sinner that really seeks to, you know, politically uh, share, you know, some of that redemption. I just, I, I, I can't imagine what a guy like that would say or... You know, it, 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 it's it totally depends on who you're talking about. So, you know, I'm I know uh, Senator McConnell a little bit. I like Senator McConnell, but I've never had that kind of conversation with him. I, I maybe he's had that kind of a conversation with folks. I haven't seen it. But then there are others uh, in the Senate, for example, like a Ben Sass. You ask Ben Sass that question. Ben Sass is going to not only come forward with, uh, you know, a, a very real and personal story about his own relationship with Christ, but he's also going to be somebody who could take the average uh, American to a theology school, practically. Um, yeah, I, I, be- I believe that about Ben Sass. I completely, yeah. I saw, I've seen a few interviews with him. I, I, very impressive guy. Yeah. So, you know, Marco Rubio has spoken at length and movingly about his faith and his own faith journey. I mean, it really varies. I, I don't think there's a generalization here. I mean, I, I, Paul Ryan, I think I, I think that's a little unfair to him. Sure, he knows Ayn Rand, but he knows his faith quite well. And, and if you get him in a room where he's talking about the motivations for why he does what he does and what he's seeking to accomplish— um, you know, that is, it's richly informed by his faith. So, so, you know, a lot of it, it's really, uh, it's the context in which you see people, the dimensions in which you learn about people. I'm not saying they're not people of faith, but it's sort of like their faith is kind of like, it's like the Minnesota Lutheran farmer who loved his wife so much. He almost told her, you know, <laughs> I, I, just, it's, I mean, Barack Obama was a guy that, you know, hired a guy like Michael Ware, could talk about Reinhold Niebuhr, could talk with eloquence about personal faith and how it connects to the public good. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's just interesting that like there's so few other Republican leadership that seem good at that. 
And it seems strange because it's no George Bush was better at it. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, he sometimes it took on these kind of a black and white morality tale at times when we got into the public realm. But he was still he could talk about it and he could definitely talk about his personal faith. I mean, it's just it's an interesting thing. Well, I don't think there's many even devout um, politicians who do that well. I just don't think there's I just think that's a small universe of people. Um, I think actually, I actually think when Paul Ryan's gets rolling on that topic, he does it well. As I said, Ben Sass does it well. Marco Rubio does it well. You know, uh, if you just listen to the words and you're not watching the delivery, in many ways, Ted Cruz does it well. I think, I think Ted Cruz has uh, a problem that he has a manner that a lot of people find grating. No matter what the context of the word, the 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 actual the actual content of the words, I think that was one of his big problems in the primary. Is people for whatever reason looked at him and didn't like the presentation, even when it got down to more or less Trump versus Cruz. People didn't like the presentation, but you know there are times when I, I've heard Cruz speak uh, and just in, incredibly well about these issues. I I could go on. It's just that I think what you're talking about is a rare skill set even in a devout person. But, 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 um, I think, but if you're going to be the, on one level, right, we kind of have this division emerging, which I think is sad because, you know, 1950, how often you went to church if you were, uh, if you were in white America, like, you know, like mm-hmm. how often you went to church was not at all a, hel- a helpful predictor of whether you voted for Eisenhower or not. It just wasn't. It just now yeah. that's what for white Americans, that's one of the best predictors. And so, yeah, and so if best. you're kind of the religion party, right, like on some level, and again, I think that it, it's sad that, that it gets this tribal like this, but isn't it just a pragmatic kind of thing? Like, hey, we're the people well, that are going to let you say Merry Christmas. I Couldn't you just get better at even trite phrases like, Jesus is the reason for the season, and we're going <laughs> to cut your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot of this you have to realize is positional um, and is divorced from charisma. So there's politicians were elected for a lot of different reasons and personal charisma is not always number one. So let's take, for example, Mitch McConnell, who at one point wasn't just the most popular politician in Kentucky. He was arguably one of the most popular politicians in the history of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Now, he's a guy who is not going to be anyone's headliner at a motivational speaking event. (laughs) <laughs> but what he is is a really – he's a really good uh, uh, organizer. He's a really good um, nuts and bolts politician. I mean he's just good at his job, his core job, but not somebody who's going to be, you know, m- make moving people to tears. I mean different politicians have different skill sets, and, and the skill set that makes you a, a good politician is not necessarily the same thing as somebody who's going to make you a, a winsome advocate for your faith. What, why? But you're still pro-life or not. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And why, you know, do you feel like, I was talking with Rusty Reno uh, a week ago, I think, on this podcast. And he said, I was asking him about, like, why is it, why is the answer sometimes to every problem tax cuts? And he said, I've pounded the desk on a lot of, you know, meetings with conservative friends. He said, guys, tax cuts don't win elections. And I'm not convinced they always even help the economy. And yet it <laughs> seems like that, that the, the messaging thing with tax cuts, it just seems like, like, I don't know, like Edmund Burke, I, I don't see him thinking this is, this is the center of the conservative message, you know, like, like tax cuts and the job creator. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's an interesting sort of, no, that's not the National Review. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been reading uh, a, a lot more of your stuff of late, actually. And 
I mean, it's very, it, it's intellectually uh, engaging. You know, it, it's fun to read. It's not reductive like that. But but so much of the messaging, it just seems so so uninspiring. Well, I, yeah. Um, and that's so, a problem for the so left, too. I mean, I think, that, yeah. The, 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 yeah, I mean. I think that there is a generalized problem of exhaustion of political ideas. Like there there it's not like we're living in a world right now where there is an incredibly vibrant community of people who are who have creative and popular and unique political ideas. Um and and that's a problem. Uh I think, you know, for republic there there have been republicans uh you know, you call them reformicons is the name that uh kind of given to them. That in a lot of them are at National Review are people who really are thinking innovatively, who are thinking creatively, like Ramesh Panuru and our aunt with us, uh, Yuval Levin, and many others. These are people who are thinking creatively, but those ideas haven't like burst into the national conversation. Um, and I think that's a, a problem on both sides. But for specifically for the Republicans, um, the thing about the tax cut message is a lot of it resonates and harkens back to Ronald Reagan. Um, and, and there's this, this story, uh, of the Reagan presidency in which the tax cuts and Reagan's tax reforms were absolutely central to revitalizing the American economy. But what you have to realize and what people have to realize is that was a different economic and tax, uh, that was a different economic and tax environment. I mean, the highest marginal income tax rate in 1980, 81 was very, very, very high. It was like 64, um, it was like 64%. It, I can't remember exactly it, what it was. Because Eisenhower, Eisenhower had 89% and Kennedy dropped it to the low 60s. And people thought Kennedy was making, was kind of conservative for that. And then we dropped it from 64 to 38 yeah, so that's a, you know, and so that's a really, really darn big difference that people feel in a very substantial way. You know, when you're talking about a difference between 35 and 31, you know, you're not talking about the same kind of impact. I mean, you're just not. Although in the aggregate, it could have a big impact, for example, on the deficit. So, you know, the ability to just sort of walk in and do something with tax policy and then watch the engine roar to life I think is it's much more limited now than it was in the past. But then, you know, the question is, well, what is it that causes that engine to just roar to life? And that's where people are kind of out of ideas. And I think in a lot of ways, um, well, Trump invented a new one, priming the pump. Well, oh, <laughs> was it now four days ago yeah, that he invented yeah, that? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, so, I mean, that's, that's old. That's an old economic idea. So everyone's running around with these old economic ideas. And and my submission is a little bit different. Uh, my my idea is not so much that we're lacking the right economic idea. It's that the fundamental nature of uh, the American body politic is changing so that if you have increasingly, increasingly fractured families, if you have um, increasing number of people on disability roles. If you have more people growing up without dads, you have a population that increasing numbers of your population, population are people who are not even in the position to take advantage of opportunity. And so, you know, if you're talking about Morning in America Reagan of 1983-84, you had far, I wrote about this for National Review, you had far more intact families. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You had far more social cohesion you had far less division on multiple fronts than you do now. And so it was a country that was more primed to take advantage of opportunity. I think right now, if you know, you go to entire sections of the county I live in, in rural Tennessee, and you could put a plant 
in this county. And the people who needed those jobs the most would be ill-equipped to work those jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and we've seen that in Appalachia for generations. Yeah, and you wrote a really interesting piece. Uh, It's funny because I asked my wife, I said, do you want to help me do a little research? You remember that guy I met, David French, last week in New York? He's going to come on the podcast. Sure, like... She's very. She's a nurse practitioner and Penn grad and voracious reader. So you want to look at some of the stuff. So she pointed me to this article you wrote. I'm pulling it up on my iPad here, just so people know why I'm pausing. Um, this is the uh, this is the piece you wrote about how elites are poisoning uh, American culture, and you were talking yeah. about how um, basically this woman had written this piece for the New York Times Magazine on open marriage and this kind of elite sort of. Libertine ethic, which in this cool look at these people doing this interesting thing, yeah. And you say sex and growth; those themes echo throughout the piece. The ideal marriage, apparently, is one in which both parties experience incredible orgasms and explore the many layers of their personalities. My wife's like, "Sounds great to me." (laughs) (laughs) She's like, "He sounds like a real romantic." Um, but, But in that piece, you talk about how actually, in the blue states, where maybe people are a little more relativistic a little more libertine in attitude at least, live in that live. But actually they're conservative in lifestyle, which is why you know, the New York Times has done some stuff, some graphs around like how yeah. basically there's better prosperity in, overall in general. I mean, there are notable exceptions, yeah. but in the blue states and even the deep blue states than the red states, but also there's more living out of the conservative values. There's fewer divorce, divorce rates. There's better educated yeah. people stay in school. Yeah. People, So like, it's interesting. You point to a paradox at the heart of it. Like, and some of the places that turn out the most for Trump have the highest opioids. They have tons of teen pregnancies, probably higher abortion rates. Uh, it's just well, it's, an interesting it, thing. And that's not an, an original. Um, that's not an original observation to me. Charles Murray really elaborates on this on his really critical book, Coming Apart, and he basically says, "Look, if you take a look at some of the." Secular elite, the elite, you know, he, he, in his book, he, he contrasts two communities, Belmont and Fishtown. Uh, Belmont, uh, uh, you know, upscale, su- a suburb of Boston, Fishtown, a more downscale suburb, I believe, of Pittsburgh. Um, and he says, look, there's diverging values in, in these two communities, values regarding everything from marriage to church attendance to volunteerism to education. They're not the same in these two communities. And and he says what's interesting about some of these more elite progressive communities that are very, very prosperous. Um, divorce is going to be relatively rare. People are waiting to have kids until after they're married. They are, um, they are, uh, um, requiring that their kids finish their education. They're educated themselves. All of these things are sort of classic traditional American, um, tra- tr- classic traditional American actions that, that, uh, advance the interests of a family and your children. A very traditional lifestyle. But at the same time, he says, it's like they live red, so to speak, and advocate blue. But then you go to some of these struggling communities and they advocate red. In other words, you know, traditional marriage. Uh, they're, you know, they're voting for traditional marriage focused politicians <laughs> there, you <laughs> yeah. know, and, and then, but much higher divorce rate. So they're acting blue and speaking red and just, you know, and these are rough, the red blues kind of rough. And, and so what Murray says is we need an elite that talks its walk. In other words, it says, look, rather than saying, Hey, go self-actualize and explore your sexuality and, and explore alternative kinds of, and there's no judgment on alternative kinds of relationships. It says, look, guys, 
get married, stay married, uh, wait to have kids until after you're married. I mean, this is this is the path to prosperity, and this is the path to a healthy life and a and a uh, more joyful life. This sort of notion and telling people who live in vulnerable, particularly people who live in vulnerable communities, like explore your sexuality and experiment and, you know, all of that. That's like the worst message that people need to hear. And, and, and that was one of my points is you can, and and what was really interesting about that article was the woman who wrote it, she did a beautiful job writing it very vividly written. She's obviously intrigued by what she sees, but then she says, but you know what, what I got is better her her monogamous marriage with her husband. I'm thinking, well, that's that's kind of in a nutshell what's happening more broadly is an awful lot of people living in these prosperous communities go, oh, it's cool and all that you're in an open marriage, but you know, that's not just for best, for, that's not best for me. What I'm saying is you drop the it's cool and all <laughs> that you're in open marriage and leave the, look guys, we have hum, enormous human wreckage across this country because we've said that marriage is, just one valid life cho- lifestyle choice among many, and that's just not something our culture is prepared to absorb. And so let's let's start talking the walk. It's interesting in a book called "Flourishing: Why We Need Religion in a Globalized World." Miroslav Volf, who's at Yale, he um he writes this. He says the, rel- the the recursive struggle between the two nihilisms is one of the great antagonisms of our time. He's thinking nihilism of world escaping religion and nihilism of sort of pleasure seeking secularism. He says in choosing between meaning and pleasure, we always make the wrong choice. Pleasure without, <laughs> pleasure without meaning is vapid. Meaning without pleasure is crushing. In its own way, each is nihilistic without the other, but we don't need to choose between the two. The unity of meaning and pleasure, which we experience as joy, is given with the God who is love. This conviction cradles this entire book. It is the main reason why I believe that we need religion in a globalized world. And, and, I mean, is it maybe like, do, is there a way to... Because I, I, I feel like he's onto something there, that the sort of meaning people sometimes talk in such a dour tone <laughs> true uh it, it, it's not it's, it's not the romance of orthodoxy that someone like chesterton talks about so how do you infuse the meaning conversation with the with some of the uh, of a re- reimagined component of the pleasure conversation yeah that's a that's a great question and i think like that, william uh, buckley you work at william buckley's magazine there was a guy that knew pleasure i mean he really <laughs> did he was in the, i mean i read accounts I, I i heard david brooks talking about spending time with him and man, oh, I mean, it just, it just, it just, I mean, gosh, I wish I would have spent time with this guy. Yeah, I know. Well, so here, here's, that's a great question. I mean, the, the problem I have, so you're, you're hitting a, a you're hitting the core communication problem. And the, so on the one hand, you have some people who are saying, look, the object of marriage is, I get to explore the many facets of my personality and have great sex at the same time. And then you, when you say that and somebody is, you know, in like what I would call the normal, more normal marriage, which has its ups and downs and has its struggles and all of that. And you're going, wait a minute, I'm not living this ideal. Why can't I be living this ideal? Um, that's, that's, that's the pleasure focus that, um, that's the pleasure focus that really separates from the meaning. The problem, I think, is we we don't communicate adequately how pleasurable a meaningful life is. And a lot of people, because of the example of their upbringing, uh, get it more intuitively. So, for example, if you are the child of an intact mother-father home and you have seen your parents work really hard, work late, um, 
deny, you know, sort of say no to some cool things when they were younger. So they were say, able to say yes to even cooler things when they were older. The sort of delayed gratification, you kind of intuitively get that. You sort of get, okay, I'm saying no to living this particular lifestyle right now because there's infinitely greater rewards down the road. If you're talking to people who are struggling, who are struggling, a lot of times these folks just lose sight of even the possibility yeah. of something really greater down the road. And that's what I, I think that is a real communication gap that conservatives have. If you're talking to a poor family well, you know, mother, father don't live in the same household. There's no record of educational achievement. There's no record of, of professional achievement. And you just say, well, you make these choices and things are a lot better. That's out of their frame of reference. And, and that's why it's so important, I think, in those circumstances to have mentoring, um, relationships where people, where you have an opportunity where people can see others modeling the kind of virtues that are needed in our, in our culture and see the, very pleasurable and good and meaningful rewards of those virtues. But if you're just talking at people about delayed gratification, if you're just talking at people about benefits that they've never seen in their lives, what they'll often have before them is a an immediate pursuit that promises some degree of pleasure, whether it's a relationship with, uh, you know, a casual relationship with a girlfriend or it's uh, alcohol or it's drugs or whatever, uh, versus something that they've never encountered and can't that's not in their frame of reference. And, and that is a huge, huge problem. And it's also a problem when you consider that you compound that with the clustering that we have in our society now. We Poor people tend to live with poor people and rich people tend to live with mm-hmm. rich people. So not only do you and your own family not have a frame of reference, you don't have a frame of reference really with anybody you, you know. <laughs> and that is a, you know, a fundamentally much, much more challenging. Hmm. Do you know, uh, Emily... Eshfani Smith's book, The Power of Meaning, Creating a Life That Matters. No, I didn't. It, it's I recent, but it's great. I mean, you would love it. But basically, it's, she looks at this like meaning versus pleasure and the, the, what it takes to be, have a meaningful life. And, and, it, and a lot of like ancient philosophy married with contemporary social science stuff that validates it. But it's, it's great. But um, I digress. Yeah, don't we also live in silos, like not just e- economically, but like politically? I mean, I, I met you at an event where I was. Um, Mark kind of felt like the token progressive voice at a thing on campus free speech. <laughs> Mark Oppenheimer. Uh, he was he was the token yeah. progressive voice, yes. But 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 Mark struck a very conservative tone on many notes. I mean, he's a family yeah. man. He 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 loves civic society. He's a man of the synagogue. He's I mean, he's so I felt like that evening, you know, I had so much in common with so many people in the room. And even now as you and I are talking, you know, I haven't voted Republican and I know I think I voted Republican when I was 18 and then I don't think I voted you know and although I might vote for Fitzpatrick in my district because he didn't vote for the congressional bill uh, so next time <laughs> around I might vote for it but because uh, I, I his principles were very I mean I he not just he just took a principled stand I really like the way I articulated but but you and I like we're both Christians we we probably uh, don't have a lot of common voting history you know shared voting history and common, but i find it very easy to talk with you it seems like we agree on more than we disagree uh it's very easy to ask you questions that are pointed but i hope generous and you're actually giving me real answers and ones that don't uh are not in a tone of undue certainty like i mean <laughs> so why aren't there more conversations like this like or, or <laughs> why, why does it why is it why aren't there more isn't there more dialogue like this i feel like if it would happen 
I just feel like it would be easier to tend to our political arrangements. Oh, man. Well, there's a couple of things here. Here's an easy answer to that question. One of the easy answers is we're we're not just grouping by social class or grouping by ideology. So, um, for example, if you lived in Manhattan, what, about nine out of 10 people who voted who voted in Manhattan voted for Hillary over Trump? Yeah. Um, it, if In my precinct, uh, 72% of the people who voted voted for uh, Trump over Hillary, where I live in rural Tennessee. So if you actually look at the data, it says that the landslide counties, those are counties where uh, one side wins by 20 plus points. The number of those counties is increasing at an incredibly rapid rate. So we're, we're geographically sorting. So what does that mean? It means that it exacerbates that already existing inclination that we have to group with people of like mind. So even if we lived in a 50-50 community, our friends wouldn't be 50% liberal and 50% Republican. We would probably be, if you're progressive, most of your friends would be progressive. Am I Republican, conservative? Most of my friends would be conservative. But then when you make those numbers disproportionate, that shrinks your social circle and your your exposure, social circle and, and your exposure to people all that much more. So then that means we don't even really understand the other side. This is the thing I talked about at that event that you attended, this sort of notion of the law of group polarization, which says that when people of like mind gather, the common expression of their shared view gravitates to the extreme. And so uh, that means we're further polarized, we're, we're more tribal in our outlook, and we have less inclination to interact with the other side because we don't like them. You know, that the, one of the most disturbing findings of a recent Pew survey on polarization is that they found that American polarization now is what you would call negative polarization. In other words, I'm if I'm a Republican, I'm a Republican because not because I love Republican ideas. It's because I don't like Democrats. Yeah. And then and then conversely. Democrats overwhelmingly are Democrats because they don't like Republicans. Now, the weird effect of this is it actually means that ideology tends to matter less, even as there's greater opposition. So think of it like this. Um, between t- Clinton and Trump, if you're going to go down, with the exception of abortion for Clinton, there's hardly an issue in which she hadn't been on both sides. Like she, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and Trump, Trump would be on the both sides of an issue in, in one paragraph, you know, much less from one month to the next. And so both of them in some really interesting ways were kind of post-ideological tribal candidates um, capitalizing on the fact that they knew that their base disliked the other side far more than the base was devoted to any one idea on their own side. And and that that was, you know, Hillary Hillary's advertisements were, look how horrible a human being Trump is. The whole argument that mobilized the Trump base to turn out for Trump was, well, at least he's better than Hillary. And so when you have that kind of negative polarization, when it's so thoroughly based not on, hey, you believe tax rates should be one thing and I believe tax rates should be another thing. Let's talk about that. Or you believe intervention in Iraq was right for this reason and I believe it was or wrong for this reason and I believe it was right for this reason. Let's talk about that. But when it's based on, I'm afraid of what you'll do to me if you gain power, that's a whole different element. And that's that's why it begins to be difficult to have these kinds of conversations. Mm. It's interesting, too. Do you see, I see that in religion, too. It, it, like If you are Greg Gutfeld or SC Cup and you're conservative, but you're an agnostic, but you still find, you, well, I'm on Fox or, or I'm a conservative commentator, and say, so I got to take up for religion. And then likewise, if you're a, a sort of observant religious person, 
on MSNBC or something, do you feel awkward talking about religion? You know, you, you, <laughs> yeah. because you're, well, we're the secular part. You know, it's just a very interesting right. dynamic where people wind up uh, tribalized even against their own convictions. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, some of the most thoughtful people I've ever met in my life who are not only friendly to people of religious faith, but can articulate religious beliefs and convictions almost better than believers are some of my conservative atheist friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're remarkable. I mean, I, um, and, and few people can make the case for the secular progressivism of the Democratic Party better than some of the progressive Christians who are in the Democratic Party. Um, they've been so, in, they've been so married, they've been so immersed in the respective cultures of the two parties. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, I, you know, you're going to build sympathies. Absolutely. And, and that's what happens when you get to know human beings. Uh, in general, in this country, when you get to know people, uh, unless they're that, rare category of person who's just sort of a Machiavellian lying scumbag of which there are people like that out there. Uh, as a general matter, you're going to, you're going to run into people who believe what they believe because they believe it is the best thing, not just for themselves, but for other people as well. And you can always have a conversation with that person if you can get there. You're a Presbyterian. Yes. Who cares deeply about public life. Do you worry about this sort of seemingly neo-Anabaptist Benedict option kind of vibe on, <laughs> on the horizon among, among younger evangelical Christians. I mean, it, 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 it seems to be on the rise, this kind of unplug and kind of be the alternative community. Uh, is that, does that, do you think that holds promise or, or do you think, is that a little escapist? Uh, you know, so he, I do not think the Benedict, so I, I this would be my interpretation of the Benedict option properly understood. The Because ben- most people have, and as I read the book and as I've read Rod's, uh, Rod Dreyer's millions of words of, of interesting, I'm not disparaging that he's written a lot about it, a lot of very interesting words about the Benedict option on his blog at American Conservative. There's about an 80-20 emphasis here. And 80% of the emphasis is we need to really think how we're raising children and passing down the principles of the faith in our own communities. That's like 80% of it. But 80% of the attention has been on the 20% of the book, which is we need to really rethink how we engage in public life. Now, I find the 20% of the book where he's talking about engaging in public life uh, less less convincing. I'll just be, I, I just, I I don't agree with his conclusions. I find the 80% part about passing on the beliefs and principles and traditions of the faith to each generation. And for our own current generation, for me to be constantly a student of my own faith, um, I find that to be incredibly convincing. Because no one's good at catechesis. I mean, no one's good at catechizing their kids themselves. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. right about that. And I, and I live in what I would call, and I think what he would fairly call a Benedict option com, uh, community. I mean, we just, we're not, we don't, we're not, we don't say that. I mean, it's just developed organically. My kids go to a church uh, and a school. The school is attached to the church. Um, you know, when, when uh, they're in fifth grade, they start to memorize the catechism. When, I mean, it, it is a very intentional, intentionally created community of people who attend church together, who go to school together, uh, who raise our, we raise our kids to understand and learn the principles of the faith. I mean, heck, until recently, October 31st for our church wasn't Halloween, it was Reformation Day. <laughs> and people, <laughs> and people literally came to church dressed as like John Calvin. Okay, Did you dunk so, Anabaptists and hold them under? <laughs> no, no, no. no. Okay, and just so, checking. 
Yeah, so I see a ton of the virtues in forming communities of people who jointly work together to teach each other and teach our kids and the principles of the faith. I see huge, huge uh, virtue in that. My my biggest issue uh, is just a very practical one. I think all of the people who really need to read the Benedict Option and to understand exactly what Rod is saying and to understand the importance of passing on these traditions— uh, to your children and forming and, and living in communities of people who pass on these traditions to their kids. I mean, my fr- fear is the people who are going to be really reading it are the people who don't have a problem with right, this. Right, right, right. Mainline <laughs> Protestants aren't going to read that. Yeah, and, and casual evangelicals. I mean, you know, you've got a huge evangelical population, particularly in the South, that are sort of more lifestyle evangelicals in the sense, I mean, it's, it's, they attend church regularly. They, um, the faith, their faith is important, but as far as like being a student of the faith, of of prioritizing above other things the teaching of the principles of the faith to their kids. I mean, there's a lot of sort of riding along with a cultural wave of a community that tends to make Christianity maybe easier in some respects than it is in other parts of the country, and that and that's those are the families that that tend to be in a situation where their kid goes off to college and then they're shocked. They're shocked at what happens to their kid in college or, you know, um, the, the families that have not been terribly intentional about transmitting these eternal truths. Those are the ones um, that I think are most vulnerable. And those are the ones, sadly, who may be less likely to read a book like Rod's. So your hope over the next, say, 10 years of public life, like what, where do you see if your you're like realistic hopes? I mean, what, what would look different in 10 years? <laughs> You know, it's funny. I mean, what's the old statement? It's always darkest before the dawn. Um, my hope, because we're rapidly reaching a point or where— Or maybe it's always darkest before the Donald. <laughs> oh, no, the Donald is—the Donald is quite dark all by himself. No, I, you know, look, my hope is that if, if, if we're not actually reaching a point of national repentance— over our tribalism and our ends justify the means sort of political um, mindset that's dominating discourse right now. Extreme tribalism, uh, excusing lies as long as lies advance your own side. Or if you're not outright excusing, you're just saying, well, what about the other side? They do it too. That if we don't actually reach a point of sort of national, I'm sorry, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, or a national repentance, that we at least reach a point of national exhaustion with it. <laughs> and, Let's hope for national exhaustion, everybody. (laughs) Yes, national exhaustion with vice. Uh, You know, and and there's reason to believe, um, for example, that that we can get to that point and good things can happen. I I would say, and I've argued this before, that the 1976 election of Jimmy Carter, even though I think Jimmy Carter was a terrible president, the actual election of Jimmy Carter said something really good about the American people. Because think about what in 19, you know, you you have the president, you have Nixon resigning. You have corruption in the highest office. You have vicious uh, political infighting. You have the federal government weaponized against opponents. I mean, you have all of what Nixon did. And the American people said, you know, I kind of like to 
vote for a Baptist Sunday school preacher or Baptist Sunday school teacher from Georgia. This guy who like doesn't want to have an imperial presidency, who is modest in his demeanor, modest in his tone, runs on, um, you know, runs on his integrity. So the actual election of Jimmy Carter in a lot of ways says something good about America and America's capacity to regenerate its, its political virtue. The problem was Jimmy Carter wasn't a good president. But the idea, the concept of Jimmy Carter, in a lot of ways, was a, a very nice change. So I, I do wonder if in 2020, say, I think there's a couple of branching paths that the parties could take. I mean, uh, in 2020, if the Democrats say, well, you know, we're going to, it's going to be the hashtag resistance and we're going to be the, the wave that overwhelms Trump and then we're going to grind him and his supporters into the dust. Or if it's going to be, hey, we're going to present a fundamental contrast to this ends justify the means kind of politics. Might be interesting. Could there be somebody who runs in a primary against Trump who says, I'm just going to offer a total contrast to this and let the American people make a choice? Mm-hmm. And that, so to me, that's going to be the really interesting question. I, I, I don't think it's foreordained how that goes. I think it's entirely possible that the Democrats could answer Trump in 2020 with somebody who will fight, punch back twice as hard as Trump does. Uh, It's entirely possible the Republicans, that there won't even be a primary challenger, that they'll say, look, this this is who we are for now. You know, who knows? Who knows? I mean, uh, political prognostications are perilous. But I do think there's a chance, based on American history, that we have— made better choices, and we have turned away in the past from political corruption. David, thanks for talking with me. You are a pleasure to talk with, and may your tribe increase. Uh, you get a great, <laughs> get a great spirit about you. Well, it's a pleasure to be on here. It was a great conversation. Thank, thanks for your questions. They were, I didn't even, uh, they were, they were good questions. I wouldn't call them pointed. I just call them good. Well, hey, the pleasure is all mine. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And do check out Dave French's writing at the National Review and his podcast, The Liberty Files. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.